Let us pray together. Almighty God, our King, our Creator, our Savior, our Father in Heaven, we praise You for who You are and all Your infinite perfections, for your, all Your wise and wonderful works with Your Son and Your Holy Spirit. You planned all things for Your glory and the good of Your people. So all of history unfolds according to Your eternal decree with Your Son and with Your Holy Spirit. You created us in Your image. When we fell away, You graciously redeemed us. You have saved us from sin and death and Satan. You have saved us from the fires of hell itself. Oh God, we gather today to rejoice in You, to rejoice in Your promises, Your forgiveness, Your feast, all the benefits You freely pour out upon us. Help us today to know that we are Your beloved people, that You are with us even when shadow and darkness fall over us. Give us grace to worship You now in holy reverence and fear, drawing near with our hearts assured of Your love and peace. We thank You for being the promise-remembering God, the sin-forgetting God, the God who commands us to be righteous and the God who forgives our unrighteousness, the God who laid the curse of death upon us because of our sin, and the God who has made us alive again through the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. O oh God, fill us with hope undying, joy unspeakable, and the peace that passes all understanding. To the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the eternal Trinity, be all praise, honor, glory, and adoration. Amen. Let's pray again together. Father, we praise you for your word that's good and it's true, it's right. Would you come now by your spirit? Would you give me strength to preach your word? Would you help us receive your word by faith? We want your word to come inside of us and produce an abundantly good harvest of many things. Would you be pleased to do all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What if our suffering was an expression of our faith as something that was opposed to it? It may sound simple enough, but there are a variety of ways and a variety of things that we do as Christians that often demonstrate the difficulty we have in actually believing this. For example, sometimes we make decisions Uh, where we believe God is leading us to do something, to trust Him in some particular way. And sometimes we'll say things like, well, I think it was the right decision because I I felt a peace about it. What we're implying when we say things like this is that our faith is confirmed by some inner feeling of serenity and this absence of any negative emotional turmoil that we feel. Or how often do we rush uh, to tell grieving people what is true about God? That God is in control. How God will work everything for good. Statements which, of course, are gloriously all true. But many times, is it possible we say these things quickly to suffering people less because we actually believe them and more because we are extremely uncomfortable with other people's suffering? We think that maybe we can help other people's pain to just go away by simply telling them things that are true. Again, the idea here is that if we trust God and put our faith in Him, then we should hurt less. The suffering will be less for us. When I was younger, I read Karl Marx, uh, the infamous architect behind communism, once say that religion was opiate for the masses 
When I first read this statement in my college days, I don't think I really understood what was he getting at when he says that religion is opiate for the masses. Uh, but the older I get, the more I think he actually has quite a good point. That for many, religion is a means of attempting to escape the harshest parts of reality in a fallen world. That it gives people ideas to medicate them from their pain, but not something that actually gives them a way to deal with reality. What we're going to see today in God's word is that biblical faith gives us a very different picture of how we experience suffering and also trust God at the same time. We're going to look at Jesus, the personification of perfect human faith, the God-man who perfectly demonstrated what does it look like to trust his heavenly Father. We're going to see that Jesus' faith involved him not experiencing some serene, blissful experience of, of trusting God, but instead entering into the very heart of human anguish. And his faith demonstrates for us the shape our own faith should take as human beings who must trust God in the midst of a fallen world that's full of suffering and full of sin. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at three different aspects of faith that we see from this very memorable scene of Jesus praying on the night of his arrest and betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to see that each three of these aspects of faith that Jesus demonstrates involves some kind of suffering, some kind of struggle in one way or the other. Okay, let's look at the passage that we read today. We're really just going to be looking at just the prayer. It's very short but very profound prayer that Jesus prays in verse 42, where Jesus is in this enormous moment of anguish. We don't get a lot of the content of Jesus' actual prayers in the gospel, so wherever we actually see the specifics of what Jesus prays, it's, it's very significant. We should pay close attention. It's interesting that the gospel writers, all of them, give us this scene of Jesus' greatest, one of his greatest hours of suffering and pain. The night where he's betrayed by Judas, he's arrested by a mob of of very religious people who are ready to have him killed. For Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this scene involves Jesus going through immense pain, but he endures the suffering in this overwhelming, painful moment by turning to his father and knowing the Father's strength through prayer. Matthew, Mark, and Luke basically give us the same scene in very similar details. And it's interesting, in John, we also have a scene of prayer on the night he's arrested. We get a much longer prayer in John 17. So let's think for a few minutes now about the specifics of what we see Jesus pray. Notice what he says. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And he says, nevertheless, Not my will, but yours be done. The other gospel writers in Matthew and Mark give us these visceral, emotional experiences that Jesus undergoes in this this powerful scene. Matthew and Mark says that Jesus tells his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Mark tells us that Jesus became greatly distressed and troubled it's interesting, John Calvin's commentary gives us this great, succinct uh, way to summarize these emotions that we read of Jesus. He says, Christ has put on our feelings along with our faith. What is Jesus really saying in this prayer? What is he really getting at? So here's the first aspect of faith that we see Jesus demonstrate in this prayer that he gives us. At the most basic level, Jesus' faith is an expression of desire. It's an expression of desire. Just a few things here on this. 
we see first this poignant display of Jesus' humanity as he prays to the Father, that the Father is willing, Father, would you remove the cup from him? The cup that Jesus is referring to here is this image you see all throughout the scriptures to refer to God's judgment and also to the suffering that people go through. So, for example, you can read the Old Testament in places like Isaiah 51.17 where you read God telling Israel, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs of the bowl the cup of staggering. See, the same idea, Psalm uh, 75.8. It says, for in the hand of the Lord there's a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This verse tells us something you see all throughout the Old Testament, that it's the wicked who are made to drink the cup of God's wrath. This imagery of drinking from the cup, it includes not only just judgment that God pours out on the wicked, but also includes deep suffering as well. That's what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 20, where he tells James and John, after their mother requests that they be elevated to these positions of power in Jesus' kingdom, he says to them, you will drink the same cup that I will drink. What cup is he talking about? He's talking about the inevitable suffering that will come to the disciples because of their faith in Jesus. Jesus understands that his people will drink of the same cup in some way that he has already drunk himself. So in our passage in Luke 22, we see Jesus coming before his Father. And what is he doing? He's honestly pleading with the Father. He's expressing his desire to be spared from the agony of suffering and divine judgment that he knows will be coming for him very soon on the cross. It's clear from this part of Jesus' prayer that the coming cross will fulfill the words of Isaiah, that God's suffering servant will be numbered with the transgressors, as Jesus mentioned just a few verses before our passage. The coming agony that Jesus has before him is the agony of the Son of God, the righteous one, suffering the judgment that God reserves to the wicked so that God's wayward people could be reconciled to God the Father. I find this aspect of Jesus' prayer so remarkable considering that the agony and judgment of the cross and the suffering was the entire point of Jesus' mission on earth. Think about the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. Uh, We're told from the very beginning this angel tells uh, Joseph that he should be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus says this again and again throughout the Gospels. His mission must involve his own suffering, his own death. And now he as the Son of Man will give his life as a ransom for many. And yet in the mystery of the Incarnation, we see God the Son wrestle with this. Wrestle with a mission. Uh, and with this request to the Father that he be spared. Spared the bitter cup that the Father has given him to drink. Jesus' cry to the Father not only involves being spared the suffering of his mission of bearing the just judgment of God, but again, his request can be seen as an expression of some of our humanity's deepest desires, some of our deepest longings that God's creation would be set free from the suffering that we all endure as people who are part of God's broken world. His request, in a sense, can be understood as an expression of his groaning, all the the groaning that creation undergoes, um, for our, our lives to be set free from the effects of the fall. The groaning for God's people to finally 
be forever rid of the futility is something, again, we all experience. And I would say as believers, we experience this in an especially powerful way. The cup of suffering is one that God's people must drink. You can make a case, I think, throughout the Bible that Christians uniquely experience the cup of suffering in an even more unique and profound way than the world does. The Scriptures tell us that because we as God's people have been united to Jesus, we share not only in His glory but also His suffering. All of us as members of Jesus' body will attain the resurrection of the dead through sharing Jesus' sufferings, as Paul says in Philippians 3. But again, think about how remarkable this is in our passage. How Jesus stands on the very edge of the climatic fulfillment of his earthly mission, and he appears to flinch. He appears to begin to struggle with taking on this terrible burden of suffering that his father has appointed for him to carry. This is a very simple application, but it's very important. People of God, it's not necessarily a lack of faith for you to pray that the suffering would stop that you could be spared from pain. Jesus was not deficient in any way for doing this, and neither are we when we plead to God for us to be spared from particular sufferings or for the suffering to come to an end. So often we give in to the devil's work of false guilt and shame when we suffer. When we suffer, we so often think that we are having such a hard time because we just don't believe enough. We just don't trust God enough. That's why life is so painful. It's why it's so hard. If I was just spiritually stronger, maybe my life would feel easier, is what we say to ourselves. But people of God, if Jesus cried out to his Father to be spared the suffering that was crucial for his entire earthly mission, you don't have to feel ashamed about your own crying out to the Father that the suffering might end as well. Praying to be delivered from our suffering can be done through your faith. And Jesus, showed, Jesus shows us how this is possible. And so Jesus shows us that faith involves voicing our, our deepest desires, our deepest longings as human beings to God. And what we do uh, when we shut down our good desires and longings is we're actually becoming less human. We're assaulting our very humanity. And what we're subtly proclaiming when we do this is that we think we are more spiritual than Jesus by suppressing our desires for relief and comfort from the suffering we undergo. We have to see that evil is always in the business of manufacturing despair for people. And despair wants you to shut down desire as a way to protect yourself from pain. But the comfort despair promises never really delivers what we want, does it? Running from your desires will not make life hurt any less for you. It will make you less human. Satan and evil want you to not allow yourself to desire anything and forsake the truth that God's desire for your humanity includes voicing your desires and longings and experiencing rejection and disappointment as a part of our faith. So Jesus pleads with the Father. He, he expresses his desire for the cup to pass from him. And notice... Uh, What happens when he voices this desire? What answer does he get from the Father? Much like what you see in the book of Job, God's silence here, the Father's silence, it's deafening, isn't it? Jesus, the Son of God, cries out to God the Father for something good, and the desire is denied. The desire goes unfulfilled. People of God, that's, that's our experience 
of the Christian life too, isn't it? There are plenty of times in our own faith where you cry out to God, you express your desires and your longings to the Father only to hear the divine no, only to have those desires to go unfulfilled. What we so often have to face and come to grips with in the Christian life is that so many of the good things you long for, they they will never be fully fulfilled in this life. And we have to know what to do with the deep frustration and the futility you will feel as a result. We experience this in all kinds of ways, don't we? Some of you have been so deeply harmed by other people that you are longing. You're just longing for someone to acknowledge what they did to you. You're acknowledging a recognition of the pain and the hurt. So there can be repentance and reconciliation and a restored relationship. What I see a lot in counseling people is this longing we have for our families to not feel so broken. Some of us grew up with parents that have, that have harmed us in deep ways. Uh, ways that we still struggle with many, many years after the, the events have come and gone. Others of us long for good things in our marriages. We long for our spouse to finally be a person that will bless our marriage in important ways that we think is really good. Ways that you long for. Some of us have children or family members or friends, people we deeply love and care about who are not Christians, and our hearts ache for them to know the joy and the life that is found only in the faith that we have in the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. So this list could go on and on, couldn't it? The desires we experience, the things we long for. And like Jesus, we hear the divine no in some way from our Father. And so Jesus shows us how to hear a no from the Father and respond in faith and not become bitter people, not become people who turn our backs against God. Our sinful flesh wants us to grow hard towards God when you experience the frustration of your good desires that you become, again, someone who's just hard towards God, hard towards people, people who can become more consumed with our pain and our disappointment than people who love God and love people. We're going to get to this in just a second, the second half of Jesus' prayer. But for now, we need to see that Jesus believed that submitting his desires to his Father was the only way forward in faith in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of this profound experience of frustration where he cries out to the Father and he gets a no. Jesus is willing to trust that his Father's will is what he will follow and trust, even if it means that he has to suffer as a result and have these desires that never go fulfilled. All right, so our passage teaches us that faith involves this expression of desire. What else do we see here about faith? The second thing I want us to see is that uh, we also see that faith for Jesus includes this cry of weakness. It includes a cry of weakness. Does this passage make you uncomfortable at all? It doesn't mean a little bit. And what makes us so uncomfortable is that we see God made flesh the Savior of the world, the one through whom the world was made, and he presents himself before his Father as someone who's weak in some way, someone who needs his Father's care. This passage gives us a vision of the humanity of Jesus that we might find a bit unsettling, a bit unnerving. We see our Savior exhibit his humanity through his his weakness, We see Jesus demonstrate his weakness in several places in what we read. 
You see this first in, in the first half of Jesus' prayer and His honest pleading with the Father that the Father would remove the cup of suffering from Him. And then we see Jesus begin to experience this overwhelming mental and emotional anxiety as He prays. And He's repeating His prayer to the Father again and again. And Luke says that His body begins to pour forth sweat. like It's pouring out of His body so much that the Gospel writer says it looks like He's bleeding out. Luke also says that an angel comes to strengthen Jesus, which tells us again, clearly Jesus in this moment is enormously weak in some way. This is one of two places in the Gospels where we see God actually sending angels to minister to Jesus in the midst of his struggle, in the midst of his weakness. This passage is consistent with what you see throughout the Scriptures teaching about the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews tells us in the days of Jesus' flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. We find this a little unsettling, don't we? I'm increasingly convinced that in conservative reform circles, it's not Jesus' divinity that makes us the most uncomfortable. It's his humanity. That's where we have a hard time understanding, could Jesus really be a, a real living human being who is weak in a, in a variety of ways? in ways that we we ourselves experience. The fact that Jesus took on finite human flesh upon himself. What our passage in Luke tells us, and what these other passages we see about Jesus' humanity tell us, is that a fundamental aspect of being a human being is that you are weak. Think for a few seconds about how life began. How did it start for probably all of us? It started by a cry of weakness as we come out of our mother's body. A cry of need. No one teaches the baby how to do this. They come straight into the world knowing how to cry out, I need, I am weak. But we hate this truth. We spend so much of our time running away from the fact that this is what it means to be human. We deceive ourselves into thinking that after we leave our infancy, We'll go strong enough to become something other than human. People who are inherently weak and must depend on God and other people. If we thoughtfully examine our lives, we'll see that Jesus really does understand and embrace what it means to be human far better than we do. We so often work, don't we, so hard to fundamentally deny again what it means to be human. That you're weak, that you're in need. We spend so much time, don't we, covering over our weaknesses exaggerating our strengths so that no one actually sees how weak you really are. You find yourself crying in front of someone else and you apologize for it? Why do we do that? Have you thought about that? Why is that so instinctive to, to cry and say, I'm really sorry? Here's the reason, I think. It's because many of us have equated weakness with something that is shamefully wrong. We so often listen to the voice of evil that loves to shame us for not being God, for being limited in our capacities, limited in our ability to transform ourselves, extremely limited in our ability to actually fix anything in the world that's broken. Your sinful flesh wants you, you, you to desire humanity in ways where you become less human and instead seduce you this illusion that you can be God. You can be the savior of God's world. Evil's constantly at work in our lives attempting you to be something other than human, someone who doesn't really need God. You don't really need people. You're totally self-sufficient. 
And living that way may give you this temporary illusion of strength, but it's a terrible way to live because it leaves you alone. It leaves you isolated. It leaves you stuck in a life where you never actually mature and know God's strength in the midst of your weakness. It leads to a life where you have to put yourself in self-exile from the life of God's love and his care that he wants you to experience through his people. And think about how our culture thinks about weakness. Our self-help culture hates it. We are bombarded with the messages all the time that you are not weak. If you just believe in yourself, you can achieve whatever you set your heart to. There's no limitations for you. Our culture tells you that weakness and failure are opportunities to just believe more in yourself, try harder, and the weakness will just go away. Pain is weakness leaving the body. Right? That's what our culture says about this. This is the mantra. Those kinds of messages will always be popular because they appeal to your flesh but they promote a worldview that is essentially cruel and merciless because it forces you to pretend like you are something other than a human being. Frail children of dust, like the great hymn says that we sing. And the longer I I do ministry, the more I'm convinced that even people with really good theology can become self-help kinds of people. They can live with a self-help kind of mindset. Men especially were taught to live in ways that attempt to deny what it means to be human. Over the years, I've slowly come to the conviction that it's not God and it's not the teaching of scriptures that promotes the idea that's shameful for men to face and admit their own weaknesses in ways you need God's help. Instead, it's the work of Satan. It's the work of evil, and it leaves men stuck on this exhausting spiritual seesaw of either deceitful pride or debilitating shame. One of the great paradoxes of the Christian life is it's only by facing and admitting your own persistent weaknesses that you'll grow up, that you'll become a person who is strengthened by God's care and his love. And again, this flies in the face of the spiritual poison of our self-help-obsessed culture, but it's a vital truth you see all throughout the scriptures. That Facing your weakness, proclaiming it, understanding it is how you know God's strength. You see this a lot, especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul. My favorite passages uh, of Paul's in 2 Corinthians 12, we read that God actually gave something to Paul to make him weak. He hated it. He pleaded with God for it to please go away. Do you remember how God responds to Paul? He says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul goes on to say something that only makes sense in the wisdom of God. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. People of God, God wants us to experience his life and strength not by hiding your weaknesses or running away from them, but by facing them and bringing them to him and sharing them with people who will love you in ways where you experience God's strength and God's care. And by doing this, we'll be strengthened and mature into God's new humanity, the people we were made to be in Christ Jesus. Okay, so we've seen that faith can be expression of desire. It's also a cry of weakness. Here's the last thing I want us to see about faith in our passage that Jesus shows us. Faith is also a submission of our will to the Father. It's a submission of our will to the Father. This is the second half of what Jesus prays in this short prayer that we see in the Gospels. 
after voicing his desire to the Father that the suffering wouldn't come to him, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We think about this statement of Jesus in the wider context of the Scriptures. You can see that Jesus' submission to the will of his Father, again, this was his mission from start to finish. Paul says this in Philippians 2 in the passage we read earlier that even though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' entire life, and especially his death, was an act of submission to the will of his Father, even if that meant denying himself and taking on the deprivation and the suffering and the struggle. And we have to see that a huge part of the spiritual battle we face every day is to be willing to die to ourselves and submit yourself and entrust yourself to the will of the Father. In the midst of our own suffering, in the midst of your own deprivation and the disappointment it brings, we can be tempted to harden ourselves, to turn away from God. In our pain, we can begin to accuse God of not being the person he said he is. Someone who is good, someone who knows what we need, someone who has promised to provide for what we need. We can even begin to listen to this twisted voice of entitlement that our enemy tells us. We can begin to believe that God owes us everything I desire. He owes me what I want. I'm going to be angry now at him because he doesn't give me what I want. Every day our flesh wants us to turn ourselves away from God and essentially proclaim not God's will, but my will be done. What I find so remarkable, again, about Jesus' statement of submission to, to his Father and his prayer, not my will, but yours be done, is that if anyone is actually ever entitled to anything, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet he refuses to demand what was his divine right of power and control over pain. Instead, he willingly takes up the cup of suffering that his Father had given him, and he clothes himself with the fragile flesh of humanity. So faith for Jesus looked like him submitting his desires to the will of his Father, even if his Father's will involved his own suffering, his own death. As we mentioned earlier, we will have our desires, things that you long for that are not sinful. You will have those things thwarted throughout your, your Christian faith. And this experience always leaves us at a crossroads. There's only two places you will go when you experience this. Either you let your frustration lead you towards unbelief, where you turn away from God, or you take our frustration somewhere else. The path we see Jesus take, the path of faith, where we are willing to trust God and submit ourselves to drinking the cup of suffering that he has for you to drink, trusting that God's good purposes will be accomplished even in the midst of your pain and your disappointment and your heartache. When Jesus prays that not his will, but his Father's will be done, he's basically saying that he's trusting that the Father's denial of his desire can lead to something good. Another good in place of the good he longs for and being spared the cup of suffering. In his short prayer, Jesus is saying that the Father's will, his plan of salvation, will be accomplished through Jesus' self-denial, through Jesus being willing to endure the frustration and the suffering and the most bitter part of the Father's cup the profound suffering and the judgment of the cross. Jesus' final words express this act of submission. From, again, from his birth to his death, he's entrusting himself to his father while he suffers. 
those last words, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is the crucial pivot point we have to know how to do when we suffer. That when we hurt, when we feel disappointed, when you long for something that you're not getting, where do we go? Will we go to our Father? Will you drink of the Father's cup of suffering and entrust yourself to Him? While you suffer, will you entrust that there's something eternally good that God will accomplish through submitting your desires to Him? Even if that involves loss and self-sacrifice and pain. But what I also want us to see about this second half of Jesus' prayer is to notice that Jesus submitting His will to His Father didn't look like this immediate sense of peace, does it? Jesus says, nevertheless, not my, will, not my will, but yours be done. And his body pours forth sweat like blood. He's entrusting his father, and he's in agony. Um, so what does that tell us? It tells us something really important. It tells us there are times in our Christian life when trusting and submitting to God the Father won't take your pain away but it gives us a path forward. Entrusting ourselves to the will of our Heavenly Father may not take away the emotional anguish, and that's not a sign of your unbelief. It's not a sign that you're doing something wrong. Faith in the necessity and goodness of the Father's will for our lives gives us a direction for the pain that we feel, a direction for the anxiety. But faith doesn't always have to be opposed to the anxiety that we feel, to the pain that we feel. Jesus is under enormous emotional stress and anxiety in this passage. And all the while, he's entrusting himself to his heavenly Father. And we can do the same by God's grace through the work of the the Spirit. People of God, your anxiety can be an expression of your weakness. And it can be an expression of a constant cry to God for help. This is what Jesus demonstrates for us in our passage. You see this, again, lots of places. Uh, like Philippians 4, and Paul says, don't be anxious, but instead do what? Go to God with your anxiety. First Peter 5, Peter says, we can cast all our anxiety on God because he cares for us. Listen, your sinful flesh wants you to feel anxiety and for you to move away from God and to rely on yourself. So you become lost inside of yourself and you're cutting yourself off from the only real source of help that you have. And what does that do? It only increases your suffering. But God wants us to come to him with the suffering and anxiety that we feel. People of God, listen, your anxiety is an indicator that something important is happening that's being exposed. That's actually good. You are vulnerable. You are weak. You are not in control. If you listen to what anxiety says, you can see that it reveals something true about who you are. You're not self-sufficient. You were made to need God and people. And you can cry out to God in the midst of your anxiety instead of seeking to bury it or run away from it. All right. Um, one final thing I want us to say this morning. We've talked about our faith and our suffering this morning, how your faith can be an expression of your pain. It's not something that has to contradict it. You don't have to avoid your suffering and believe that that's faith. And we've seen Jesus' very human prayer that he expresses his deepest desires to his faith and he perfectly submits to the bitter cup of suffering that the Father has. But here's the final thing I'm, I'm going to say in our passage. The final thing I want us to see about our passage, especially in the context of the rest of the Scriptures, is that the cup of suffering is not the only cup that was ordained for the Lord Jesus to drink. And it's not the only cup 
that the Father has ordained for you to drink either. Jesus' own life teaches us the final cup after the cup of suffering is the cup of eternal joy. His own life teaches us that the final cup we will feast on will be the cup of eternal joy that's coming for us that we get even foretaste now and glimpses now while we drink from the bitter cup of suffering. This coming cup will not be a cup that is bitter to your soul. This will not be a cup that you plead with the Father to be spared from. The cup of eternal joy that the Father has prepared for us will satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. This is the cup we get to drink with Jesus for just a little bit each and every Sunday while we feast in his presence. The cup that gives us a preview of eternity. People of God, the Lord Jesus has drank the cup of judgment on your behalf. He's gone ahead of you. He has suffered in your behalf. And he understands the pain that you feel. And he's prepared for you a final cup. A cup that he has already tasted. And we're going to finish with him for all eternity. The Lord Jesus is awaiting us to join him with this final cup that we will drink together the cup of salvation that we experience in the new heavens and new earth, the cup that we have a foretaste now. This is a cup that's going to turn all your sorrow into joy, a joy that nothing and no one will ever take from you. Amen. Let it be so. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your word that's true, it's good and right. We praise you for the Lord Jesus and what he's done on our behalf, that he he understands uh, the suffering and struggle we endure as human beings, and he, he teaches us, Father, what does it actually mean to put our faith in you while we struggle? Father, I do pray now uh, for the rest of our service that you would bless us, you would give us a foretaste of the cup of eternal joy that's coming for us. Father, would you be pleased to work in us by your Spirit? Um, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As God's royal priesthood, let us stand together for prayer. Let us cry out to our Father together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we do give you praise and thanks for all your goodness and tender mercies. We bless you for the love that created us and that sustains us day by day. We praise you for the gift of your Son, our Savior, through whom you have made known your truth and grace. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, our Comforter, for the church, which is the body and bride of Christ, for the means of grace, the word, baptism, and the Eucharist, for the lives of all faithful and godly people, and for the hope of the life to come. Help us to treasure in our hearts all that our Lord has done for us and enable us to show our thankfulness by lives that are given completely to your service. O Father, save, defend, and grow your church purchased with the priceless blood of Jesus Christ. Give to her pastors and ministers endowed with your Holy Spirit and strengthen her through their ministry. Give her ruling elders who shepherd the flock faithfully and deacons who show mercy to the needy. Make your church perfect in love and in all good works and establish her in the faith delivered to the saints. Fill her with mercy for the lost and compassion for the poor. Sanctify and unite your people in all the world that one holy Catholic and apostolic church may bear witness to you, the God and Father of all. We humbly intercede, O Lord, before you on behalf of all sorts and conditions of people that you would be pleased to make your ways known unto them, your salvation to all nations. Send forth your light and your truth into all the earth. 
Raise up, we pray, faithful servants to labor in the gospel at home and in distant lands that the light of the gospel might fill the earth. We especially pray for persecuted saints throughout the world, our brothers and sisters, who because of their loyalty to Christ are attacked and slandered and made to suffer. O Lord, throw down the false gods, the idols who lead people and cultures astray. Protect and provide for your people that they may flourish in every nation, that Christ might inherit the nations as his promised inheritance. Lord, we especially pray for Peru Mission and the work of Wes Baker. We thank you for the good work doctors from our congregation and from CMMA have done there in Peru this month. We pray for Church of Christ in Porto Alegre, Brazil. We pray for the work of the Joint Eastern European Project, for Ralph Smith and Mitaki Evangelical Church in Tokyo, for Pastor Sansonich and his church in the Ukraine, for Pastor Pavel Bartosik and his church in Poland, for Blake Purcell and those involved in the work of Hope Russia. Father, would you make all of these ministries effective in spreading the kingdom of Jesus, in spreading the good news of his gospel? And Lord, we pray the same for our church, that you would bless the ministries of Trinity Presbyterian, that we might be the kind of church you call us to be in your word, the kind of church we know our city needs us to be, faithful to you in word and deed. May we worship you in the beauty of holiness so that you are enthroned upon our praises. May the mouths of babes and infants among us silence the foe and the avenger. May your word thunder from our pulpit with power. May you use Sunday school and small groups and Bible studies and Wednesday Vespers and Theopolis and all the gatherings of this congregation to edify and equip the saints for service. May we prosper and know your peace. May you provide for us abundantly, granting us unity and strength. May you grant to the officers of this congregation great wisdom as they contemplate our facility needs. God of all comfort and protection, we bring before you all who are in any way afflicted, all those oppressed with poverty, sickness, unemployment, or any other trouble of body or mind. We pray for those who have suffered losses in their family, especially we pray for Pastor Nazareth and his family in Tanzania as they grieve the loss of his daughter. We pray for healing, peace, and comfort for Jim and Brenda Jordan, for Gilbert Douglas, for Lindsay Scogan, for Doug Peterson, for Rachel Winstead's aunt, for Hector Cockett, and for others we name in our hearts before you now. Father, we do ask that you would bless and comfort and heal loved ones who are suffering in any way. We pray that you would grant us all the consolations of which we have need and overrule our present sufferings to our eternal good. Have mercy upon those to whom death draws near. Bring consolation to those in any sorrow or mourning. And grant to us all a measure of your love, taking us into your tender care. We rejoice with thanksgiving in all those who have loved and served you in your church on earth and who now rest from their labors. Keep us in fellowship with all your people and bring us at length to the joy of your everlasting kingdom. All these things and whatever else you see that we need, grant us, O Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, who died and rose again and now lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, age after age. And hear us now, Father, as we are bold to pray that which the Lord Jesus has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, 
thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.